Okay, so welcome back to my podcast, No Bullshit with Joe, and today I want to talk to you guys about adoption. Um, So this is episode number two. Episode number one gave you a very brief insight into my life um, from being uh, in foster care and living with my parents to now talking about transitioning from foster care into adoption. But I want to go into a bit more detail than just my life story and how it worked for me. I want to sort of add my thoughts into how the whole system works now as a 34-year-old man. So I was adopted in about 1997-ish, something along those lines. And I think you have two types of people, okay? So you have a couple, well, there's a lot more than two types of people, but we're going to say two types of people for now. So you have the couple that want to give back to society, the couple that want to help a child that maybe is lost in the system, that maybe needs some love and some guidance. And I think they're fantastic people. Um, but then you also have the people, the couple, that have maybe not been able to have children for whatever reason, or um, maybe struggled to have their own child, and they decided that they want to go on to adopt, because that's the next option. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, as long as this does not cloud the judgment and their ability to realise that that adopted child is not their child. I'm going to repeat that because I really, 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 really want to get that message home. It is okay for an adoptive parent to adopt a child because they have not been able to have their own kids. As long as them not being able to have their own kids does not cloud their understanding that that child is not their child. And I think people who want to give back to society, really, 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 really understand this. And really understand that their aim is to adopt a child, to support that child, with the potential of them calling them mum or dad, or being um, affectionate towards them as, as their caregivers or their parents. But that's the child's choice. And I think adoptive parents who adopt in a lot of cases for the reason that they've not had children expect the child to call them mum and dad and expect the child to basically pretend that they have no past, pretend that they have no no, no past, pretend that they have no other life before they met these people. And I think this is where it fundamentally falls down. So, that's where my stance is with it. And, you know, also I think I think it's a bit of a weird setup as well. This is in the UK I'm talking about. You know what, I'm, I'm talking about back to 1997. But when I was in the UK, it, you, you know, when I was in the UK, when I was being adopted, sorry, the adoptive parents would basically be told, you know, um, what child is available, so to speak, and... They would, you know, request that they want a boy or a girl, or they want two boys, or they want two girls, or they want to uh, one kid, and they go and meet the cat child. But when they go and meet the child, they're basically like it's like when a farmer goes to cattle, the farmer goes to buy the cow, you know, the adult or the the potential parent goes to see the child to see if they want to keep it. Um, that's certainly how it comes across, um, and I'm only telling you this as a as someone who has been adopted and through the foster care system. Um, So, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you how I was adopted. So, 
I remember first meeting my adoptive dad and mum, so to speak, um, when I was still in foster care. And it was this massive, massive big ginger bloke that came. Um, and I remember him playing with me in the garden and stuff like that. And I remember, you know, um, thinking this guy's dead cool, you know. Uh, at the time, I was in foster care, so I wanted to get out of the situation. Um, because while I was in foster care, I was being pretty badly abused not not by the foster parents because the foster parents were pretty cool but by the by their daughter their oldest daughter who was pretty beating me up um and she'd beaten me up at this point to the point where um i had ended up in hospital um on a holiday in wales on one uh, on one occasion so this this situation is pretty phenomenal um this guy was here he was showing me love and kindness and he was showing me affection and he was wrestling with me in the garden and the, the woman um, seemed pretty cool as well. Um, she spent a bit more time with my younger sister at the time. And I was like, I need to get out of this situation. I'm making this decision not only for me. You know, I'm only, I'm, I was only seven at the time. But I'm making this decision for my sister. Um, so we need to get out. You know, the, the people who came to see us decided that they wanted us to uh, be their daughter and son. Um, and I got asked a question by my foster mum not long later. Um, not long after that, who came to me and said, look you know, um, do you want to go and live with these other people? And I said, yes. And before we knew it, we were moving in with these other people. Now, I remember when I first, uh, they, they'd come along and they'd take us on days out. So they'd take us out for a couple of three days. And they took us to McDonald's and then they took us, um, what else did they take us? They took us to the farm that they lived in um, on one of the trips and... Uh, this massive farm at the time, um, which had tractor on it, and it had all sorts of different things. Um, and then they showed us this room, which was to be our bedroom, um, which was to be shared between me and my sister, which was pretty awesome and pretty cool, to be honest. Um, and I remember waking up in that bedroom and thinking, wow. Um, I remember, sorry, I remember moving in there um, and waking up the following morning in that bedroom and thinking, wow, this is so cool. Um, we've got this massive bedroom. Um, I've got this, uh, I remember it now, bulldog alarm clock, um, which was like this massive bulldog and it had this big gun. Um, and when the alarm went off, it'd go bang, bang, wake up and you'd press the top of the alarm and it'd shut the alarm off. Um, my sister was in the bed next to me. Um, I remember not waking up frightened like I'd done in foster care. I'd woke up absolutely terrified, um, but actually waking up pretty chill um, and pretty happy. And... For the first couple, well, for the first year-ish, it wasn't too bad. It was like that, maybe six months. Um, but as time went on, things got worse. Um, the adoptive father sort of figure decided that... Uh, just little things at first. So one of the things that really, really sticks with me is I was riding around on um, my pushback. Um, on the tarmac and I remember him saying to me I was only about seven at this stage I remember him saying to me if you don't stop riding around or something along the lines of if you don't stop riding around there that'll be it right that'll be it and he was really shouting at me and then he, he had a big chainsaw in his hand and I remember him revving the chainsaw and I remember being absolutely terrified Um, you know at that point in my life my biological mum had been brutally murdered by my dad I'd been beaten up in foster care up until the age of seven years old. 
Um, so I lived with my biological parents till I was five, then I lived in foster care till I was seven. And now at eight years old, I'm basically being threatened by someone who I thought was there to protect me. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's when you look back on it, you think, wow, you've taken these kids on and you, you're basically continuing the abuse, even though you know their past and their history and you know what they've been through. So we then moved house. We then moved house about a year into living with them and we moved into this massive, even bigger farmhouse with this, with tractors and with God knows what. And again, as I started to get older, you know, I, we moved, I remember moving into this farmhouse, sorry, uh, my mind's flipping between a thousand things at once. So I remember moving into this farmhouse and we moved in and I remember um, when we moved to this farmhouse, I remember Mark. Uh, oh shit! I said his name then. I remember this person saying to me, "So my adoptive dad and my adoptive mum." I remember them saying to me, "Right, you can call me." I remember him saying, "You can call me dad," and her saying, "You can call me mum." And I was like, "Okay," and it felt weird, like yeah, you can start calling us mum and dad now. And it was like, mm, "Don't know, not sure," but I started doing it, and it became natural as time went on. So let's just fast forward a few years. So we fast forward a few years. I've had some visits to my to my older sister because we had an older sister. I've had some visits to my older brother, maybe two or three times. Um, whilst the social workers were still coming around, but once the social workers stopped coming around, we stopped going to see my big sister, and we didn't really ever see my brother. Um, my adoptive dad was saying how useless my brother was, and. You know, you don't need to see this person or that person, blah, 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 blah. So, I was like, right, okay. Um, so, I never really saw my big sister in my younger years. And I never really saw my brother um, in my younger years. Because um, my adoptive parents sort of went, right, you're living with us now. You're now our children. And you haven't got... Theoretically, they didn't say this, but they just theoretically just stopped us, stopped bothering taking us to see my older sister and my older brother and that in itself is chronically wrong and I think I think that if we go back to the theory that I was speaking about before if you've got adoptive parents who are adopting for the right reasons um, and realise and understand that them people are people children are people before you came along and aren't just your children and are their own people um, I think what tragically happens here is the difference between the two types of people is one set of people will um, make the effort to make sure that that child stays in contact with that um, with their brothers and their sisters and anyone who isn't deemed as a risk to the child. Whereas the other ones who want you as their own will not make that effort to make sure that you are in contact with your brothers and sisters because all that does is remind them that they aren't theoretically fully your parents. And I really, 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 really do believe that. Um, it certainly was the case in my case, and I think it probably is the case in a lot of other people's cases, um, even people listening to this podcast in 10 years from now. I mean, I'm shooting this in 2022 when we potentially hit World War Three, but that's another story. Eh? So that's where we are at this situation at the moment. So I've moved in, I've lived with these people now for about 
so about 10 years I'd say so at this stage I'm about 16 17 um I moved in with him when I was about seven or eight years old and you know we call it a mum and dad we treat him as parents blah 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 um and I remember a couple of times with my adoptive mum like tr- um so asking questions about my past and it was always poo-pooed off it was always brushed off we don't need to talk about that now we don't need to worry about that now and I know that I had a um we we had a file so what happens is when you're adopted or what happened when I was adopted is you are given a file and the idea is that this file you are given you go through as you grow up so um I know what happens with 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 uh, my older sisters and brothers is that as they grew up their foster carers or their carers sat with the social workers and they went through their file and as they got to a certain mental age they explained certain details of their life and then as they got older they explained a little bit more and as they got older they explained a little bit more and this was meant to happen my adoptive parents were meant to do this with us we had our file um, and they were meant to go through with us our file step by step and they were meant to explain to us what had happened in our lives um, up until the point we were adopted and why the things had happened up until the point we were adopted and this never happened and every time I brought it up it was poo-pooed off and I remember my sister my older sister used to every single year without fail always send us a card I remember one year I must have been about 16 was I driving yet I don't think I was driving 16, 17 I got a letter through the post and it had my older sister's telephone number on. So at that point, I had a mobile phone. So what I did, because I didn't have a mobile phone until I was 16. So what I did is I wrote that number in my phone and I kept and I stored it. Um, and then I left the letter on the side. Um, and that was it. And I started texting my sister and we started talking. And I remember about a year, half a year into me and my big sister talking. I remember my adoptive mum being stored in the kitchen and I remember saying your phone's going off all the time I was like yeah it's my sister and I remember her saying to me intrinsically like I I remember I will never forget these words for as long as I live I remember her saying to me I will stop you from speaking to your sister because you're speaking to her too much so let's just let's just rephrase let's just go through all that again she said to me I will stop you from speaking to your sister because you're speaking to her too much now this is my older sister who i had not spoken to for years just as i had not spoken to my older brother for who wasn't in contact with at that time for years just as they had stopped us theoretically speaking from to my sisters or brother brothers for years and stopped us from having that communication and i remember looking her dead in the eye and being like maybe that's not gonna happen you're not going to stop me from doing any of them things. At the end of the day, she's my sister and I am going to build a relationship back up with this person because I've just got back in contact with them. End of conversation. So, that's, this is, this is, and I think this is where the, it, it, it falls down, you know, um, and it falls down because adoptive parents love, uh, adoptive parents who cannot have kids themselves see the person that they have taken on as theirs they have like this ownership over that person control over that person like it is their own being and you owe them something and you know 
as I got older and older, just things got tougher and tougher, man. You know, um, I couldn't do nothing I did. Nothing I did was right. And I'm not talking about normal teenager behaviours. Um, I'm talking about, like, if I start looking at... If I look back now as a parent myself, so I've got two two little girls myself. If I look at my two little girls' lives now and I look back to when I was a child, you know, I remember there was nights when I would come home. My, my, my technical day, so my theoretical day, would be I would, from school, let's say from when I was a kid at school, I'd go to, I would get up in the morning about 5, 6 a.m. I'd go and clean out the horses that these couple owned. I would then have to come back in the house. I would then make my dinner for the school day, which was fine, having the odd chore. But then I would make... Um, and this is phenomenal, me actually saying this now, really just baffles my head. Um, as a parent myself, I don't understand it. I would make um, my adoptive dad a cup of tea. And I'd have to take it up to him to wake him up in the morning. But I'd get shouted at if I spilled the tea on the stairs. So I'd have to be careful with that. And then I'd have to go and take his briefcase. Go and put it in the car. Because he owned a car garage. Go and put the briefcase in the car. And start the car. To make sure the heaters were on. To make sure that it was warm enough for him to get in. Yeah, I bet you're processing what I've just said. As much as I'm processing the fact that that is something that I used to do. He would then drop me off at the pub. Um, and I'd get picked up. I'd go to school for the day and then I'd come back. When I came back, the first thing was, we'd come back, go upstairs, get changed, straight back outside the doors, clean out the hens, which we had, feed the hens we had, water the hens, clean out all of the horses, feed, water them, um, all that sort of stuff. So that'd be an hour, an hour and a half's worth of stuff. And then we'd go upstairs and we'd start our homework. We had to make sure our homework was done. And then... We'd come back downstairs and we'd have tea. So what would happen is, <laughs> and it still baffles my head to this day, they would have tea in the what was what was called their day room at the time, um, their sort of lounge room. And we would have ours at the kitchen table in the kitchen, man and my sister. And if, um, fuck it, I'm going to say his name, not his full name, but I'm going to say his name. So if Mark, um, my adoptive dad, actually wanted something, um, so he's bringing up some really really weird um emotions and images but if he wanted something so we the, the kitchen was in the kitchen was in one room and the day room which wasn't the posh lounge it was the day room was in the other room and if he wanted something he would shout joseph which was which is my name joe um and he'd say go and get me the salt and i'd have to get up from eating go and get the salt go and take it to him in the living room give him the salt He'd put it on his plate, which was he had a tray on, and then I would take the salt back off him, go and put it back in the back in the cupboard, sit back down and continue eating. And then it would be Joseph, I want a bottle of wine. So then I'd have to get back up, I'd have to go down into the cellar, get him a bottle of wine, walk back all the way up in, from the cellar, take the stuff to him so he could open the bottle of wine and take two glasses in there for him and his wife. And I'm saying this and I'm like, wow, this is phenomenal. And then I'd go sit back down. And then I'd get, um, I'd finish my tea, I'd go load my stuff into the dishwasher. So this was, you know, I was about 13 plus when this was happening. And this happened until I left home, basically. Until I said, right, I'm not doing this shit anymore. Um, and I remember, like, sitting down and, like, 
putting stuff in the dishwasher and then them being like, uh, Joseph, Joseph, come collect my trays. And I'd have to go back into the day room and we would go and collect, me and my sister would go and collect Mark's trays and his wife's tray. And then we'd go back into the living room, into the kitchen, and we'd put everything, all that stuff in the dishwasher, scrape everything the DNA into the bin, um, wipe the trays around, put the trays back. Um, and then we'd go back upstairs to do our homework, or we'd go and sit in the living room with them, and we'd watch Emmerdale going over the street in EastEnders. Now, that was sort of our nighttime routine. But some of the other things that would happen is, um, Mark would suddenly have this thought in his head and he suddenly decided that he'd want to see my homework to make sure it was right and he used to pleasure in the fact that he'd go right where's your homework and I'd go upstairs to get it and I'd bring it down and he'd be like oh it's not neat enough or it's not this or it's not what I would have put and he'd make me rewrite it um, and he used to like sort of revel in this and looking back now it's it's phenomenal how a parent could do this to their kid um, because they had to maintain this image um, you know there was a lot more to it than just two people who'd taken on two children um, and looked after the two children and treat them to children because they wanted children, couldn't have them. Um, and I know that was a fact for these two. Um, but treat them children as their own. But there was a control aspect to them. Like, they weren't treating us as their own. They were treating us as slaves, basically. Slaves to them as people and slaves to them as the house, which I didn't understand at the time. But looking back on it now, that's phenomenal. That's what it was. So... He'd get this thought in his head and he'd be like, right, go and get me your homework. So I'd have to, I remember shitting myself, like, being terrified, getting him the homework. So, getting the homework so that he could go and see it. Um, but he'd look at it and he'd discrimin- like shout about it and make me redo it. There'd been many times that he'd rip it up um, and just slam it, throw it on the floor. Um, and I'm like, wow, these this, this, this person is really doing this. This is unbelievable. Or there'd be times where we'd be sat there and I've had a busy day, I've done all the animals, I've done this, that, and the other, and I'd sit down and they'd be like, right, um, go into the shed and go and get some tools because we're going to start making some cupboards for one of the rooms upstairs. And I remember there was some there was, there was some weeks where on a Monday, so for argument's sake, on the Monday I'd get up, I would um, do my animal routine, I'd go to school, I'd come back from school, do my animal routine, do my homework, and then have my tea, sort out everything, tidy it all up while they were watching TV, sell out all their shit and then he'd be like right go in the shed and get me this this wood this wood this wood and the other wood and then i would spend till one two o'clock in the morning going up and downstairs with pieces of wood all the time while he was shouting at me and telling me how much of a useless cunt I was um and yeah that's basically how my life went um living with these adoptive parents so i think you know i no longer have anything to do with them it was I think about 2009, um, well, how old am I now? 34, so I was 24 in 2012, so um, 23, 22, 21, yeah, 2008, 2009, where I just packed my bags and left um, because I just had enough. Um, you know, um, Saturday, he'd have me washing cars at his garage, which I didn't mind doing, but then he'd give me £10 for the whole day. Um, when I finished school, he was like, right, you're going to work for me for... For, you're going to work for me, 
you're not doing anything else, you're going to work for me. And I remember I spent about 18 months working for him in his garage, and it was hell. It was absolutely hell. My life was a living hell from the minute I got up to the minute I went to bed. Um, and then on Sunday, he expected me to be working at home all day, um, doing bits of flagging and pointing and stuff like that. And he just was a horrible person. And if I think back to that situation now, and I think back to the adoption process, it truly is broken. And, you know, when I left, they saw it as this massive betrayal, like I'd betrayed them by leaving. Um, And I remember my adoptive mum at the time sent me a letter saying, like, you know, you've used us to bring you up. Um, That's a bit rich coming from the bitch, really, Um, when we look back at how they treated me and my sister for the amount of time that I lived there. Um, So, yeah, that's my thoughts on adoption. That's some of my experiences. And my thoughts on adoption are that you have two types of people. You have the first type of people who genuinely wants to make a change in someone's life and then the other type of person who wants to have children because they couldn't have children and then they decide that they're going to make sure that that child is their own and basically forces them and downtrods them into making sure that they don't remember any of their past or they don't ask any questions and they do as they're told um which unfortunately backfires because people do rebel at the end and they usually go to the stage they go i'm not doing this anymore see you later which is what i did and don't get me wrong financially we had a massive house we went on plenty of holidays um you know we went to america i've been to france not germany i've been to france italy um I've been to loads of different places, but money doesn't displace genuine love. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at someone, unless you're capable of giving them that emotional connection, it's not going to happen. You've got to be able to give someone that love and that affection as a parent figure, um, an emotional connection. And unless you're going to give them them true emotional connections, um, then you doesn't matter how much money you give them. He's not gonna. It's not gonna help. You know. I remember there was a, there was a time when I was having an argument with Mark. Um, I was starting to rebellion. I think it was about eighteen, nineteen, and he was like, "I I feel like you don't you don't give us any affection, or you don't show us any affection, or blah 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 blah." And I thought to myself, you know, looking back on that situation, I was never taught how to show affection as a child because I'd always, 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 always been abused. Um whether it be physically, psychologically or emotionally, there was always some sort of abuse going on um, up until I was adopted. And then when I was adopted, it was mainly psychological abuse of Mark um, and gaslighting techniques. Um, And I think it's phenomenal, really. It is absolutely phenomenal that people can be allowed to go into somebody's lives who are vulnerable, take them from that situation and then continue to abuse them and i don't blame the social services for this because they come across as two people who are the most loveliest nicest people you've ever met in your life two outsiders but when you're in behind closed doors it is a very 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 different situation and very different ball game so i'm going to end this podcast here now but i do want to say to you guys if you are or have been adopted or affected by anything that I've spoken about in this podcast, then please feel free to send me a message on my Instagram account, my TikTok account, uh, my Linktree account, 
well, I say Linktree, that you can access me through Linktree. Um, if you do decide that you want to support my channel by buying any of the products that are on Linktree, I sell NFTs, I sell children's books, I sell adults' books, I sell horrors, I sell my autobiography, which really needs rewriting because it's shit, because I wrote it in 2017, so it needs a lot of work doing to it, so maybe don't buy that just yet. Um, but yeah, over and out, peeps. If you have been affected by anything I've said, please feel free to send me a message, or please feel free to share this podcast if anything has resonated with you this is episode two in adoption and care and growing up in care and if you do want me to interview you um, and you do want to come along onto the podcast itself and talk about growing up in care or adoption or abusive relationships or anything like that then uh, please feel free to let me know because i am quite happy to do a conversation or a chat or a discussion at some point about um adoption and care and that sort of stuff so yeah uh, over and out, peeps, and thank you very, very much for listening. This has been No Bullshit with Zoe. It with Zoe. Who's Zoe? No Bullshit with Zoe. Joe. Episode two. Um, care and adoption.